Psalm 73. This is God's holy, infallible word. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I I discerned their end. Truly you've set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Would you pray with me? Great and glorious Father, How wonderful are your words to us, O God. How amazing is your grace in steeping low to comfort us with the words of your psalmist. Holy Spirit, write these words on our hearts. You are good. You are near. Through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, by faith we are reconciled to you. Through his atoning sacrifice, we can enter the sanctuary. We've received grace in abundance. Our sin is great, but your grace is greater. Holy Spirit, use my weak words to inflame the hearts of your people, unstop ears, renew hearts, breathe life into dry bones, lift our eyes once again to Jesus. He's the embodiment of your covenant love and mercy. With full confidence in his finished work, we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 73 might be my favorite song. Pretty sure it is. Now, why is that? Because it's so honest about our confounding nature, the confounding nature of life, but also it's so grounded in the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 73 is considered by most to be a wisdom psalm because it shares a lot of the same um, 
literature elements as Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. Professor Mark Vitato says that wisdom literature teaches us how to put God's instruction into practice in many of the major areas of our life, like how you relate to your money, how you face death, how you handle your sin, how you use your tongue, and particularly in our psalm, how you wrestle with the perplexities of life. One reason we're looking at the psalm in particular, and Mike just mentioned it, is because we'll be beginning a sermon series on Job next week. And there are aspects of this psalm that seem to come right out of Job. Why do the righteous prosper? Why do the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper? This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. So why do you need this psalm this morning? Why do I need this psalm? Why do we need wisdom? Well, many of us have gone from Christmas to chaos. doesn't take long, right? From praise to Christ's coming to confusion because the world is broken and life hurts. Like the psalmist, we're often perplexed by life. We know that God is good, but our feet are slipping. We're surrounded by brokenness. And just over our vacation in Virginia, I was quickly reminded of the effects of sin. Um, the suicide of a childhood schoolmate, broken family relationships, divorce, grieving families, and, but the sin, it's not just external, it's internal as well, right? It's, it's the sin we see in our hearts. It's the difficulties in life cause these questions in our hearts. Is God good? Is he nearby? Can I trust him? You might be feeling disoriented this morning. Um, pilots know this really well. This idea of spatial disorientation. When you're flying and you've lost the ability to understand aircraft direction in relation to the earth. The pilot's perception of direction doesn't agree with reality. And this can happen during poor weather conditions with low or no visibility. You can't really see the horizon. And if the pilot hasn't been trained in using instruments, they might think they're going straight, but they're actually going to the right or going to the left, which can lead to a downward spiral into death. And friends, this can be true spiritually too. You may think that you're flying straight, but you're really in a death spiral. Maybe you know things are going wrong, but you don't know how to get oriented back to God. Maybe you have no idea things are going wrong in your life. You think you're flying straight, but you're actually headed toward the ground. Well, Whether you're perplexed by the life that you see around you or by your own sin, or both, God has a message for you today. And that message is that even in the midst of the difficulties of life, through Christ, God is continually with us. Therefore, we can confess our sin and enter his sanctuary. So we'll be asking three questions today of this text. Number one, why do we drift away from God? Number two, how do we come back? How do we make our way back to God? And number three, how should we then live as God's people? This will be mirroring the movements of the psalm. You can see from the beginning that the psalmist is in the midst of a struggle, right? He knows God is good to Israel. That's the very first thing he says. God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart, but all is not well. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. See, this is a picture of a believer far from God. The psalm highlights three reasons that indicate this to us, why he's drifting. The first is envy. Look what he says in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is envy? What is jealousy? As one pastor puts it, to envy is to want someone else's life It's to feel 
not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do, and God hasn't been fair. In result, envy strips away any enjoyment of what you have already, right? Because you're so focused on them. Envy is the lie that tells you that you'd be more happy with more stuff, a different life, more money, etc. He says, the power of envy is such that it made even the Garden of Eden feel like it wasn't enough. But what does envy do to us? How does it work? Parul Segal is an editor at the New York Times Book Review, and she says, Jealousy and envy trains us to look with intensity, but not accuracy. In fact, the more intensely jealous we are, the more we become residents of fantasy. Jealousy muddles our minds. We don't see accurately. Think of the immense popularity of Facebook and, and Instagram and the rise of these social media. En- envy loves details and pictures, right? And that's what Instagram is all about, seeing details. I mean, think about things that you've envied, people you've envied. You always you center on what? What they look like, their hair. You envy their hair. You envy their money or, you, or their skill set, right? You, you zero in on details. And for Instagram, we forget that what we're viewing is a highly edited version of somebody's life. They're showing what they want to be seen. And we do that too. The psalmist is doing this with the ungodly. For almost ten verses, he's describing the wicked. He's zeroing in on what they do. He's focusing in so much that he forgets the reality. He forgets the eternal reality. That despite temporal circumstances, God is good to Israel. Think about your own life for a second. Do you struggle with envy? What causes you to envy other people? For the psalmist, it was the prosperity that other people had. Verses 4 and 5, he says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Back then, to say somebody was fat, it was actually a good thing. It means that they had money. It means like they were, they were well fed. They don't have to worry about paying next month's bills. Money is not an issue. They have friends in high places. Have you ever thought to yourself, it would be much easier if I wasn't a believer. Then I could focus my entire life on making money, always being comfortable. I could work extra hours, get the raise, climb the ladder. And who cares if I cut some corners? All that matters for unbelievers is making yourself happy, comfortable, and wealthy. I think one interesting example is the lottery. I don't know if you heard, but it went over a billion dollars, the 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 lotteries that's going on right now. It's hard to imagine. And I was reading an article about the lottery, and um, the perception is that you'll never have to worry about money again once you win the lottery. But the reality, this article said, is you're going to worry about money for the rest of your life because it's going to be consuming you your whole life. And most people don't get happier. When they, when they get all that money. They get more consumed. People, people badger them with borrowing money and loans and business ventures, and it ruins your life. Jesus told a parable in Luke 12 of a man who spent his entire life storing up food and wealth. And after all this, he said to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Immediately following that parable, Jesus talked about 
how you should not be anxious for money and food and clothing, for God will provide. He says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Think about it. If you're anxious about money and other things, how much of that anxiety is driven by envy? How much of that anxiety is driven by envy? Are we anxious about what we need or what we need to look good in front of others? Jesus tells us to be anxious for neither, but instead trust God and his care for you. Don't be envious of others because it will drive you away from God. Well, what else causes us to, to be driven away from God? Verses 9 through 11 reveal another reason that the psalmist was jealous of the wicked. He writes, They set their mouths against the heaven, their tongues stretched through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Well, what's the root? What is this pointing to? Isn't it self-sufficiency? Self-sufficiency. They have no need for God. They question not only his existence, but his very usefulness. God, we don't even need God. How can God know? So sure of their place among men, they assume that God is in their debt. They're so sure of themselves and no one questions them. But don't we all, don't we all have this tendency, self-sufficiency? Even if we're don't, not feeling self-sufficient ourselves, we admire those who are, who do. One pastor says it this way, Why do we pray less when things in life are going better? And why do we secretly feel that we deserve the lives that they have? There has never been a human society without overweening pride at the top and bitter envy at the bottom. That's why if the have-nots ever overthrow the haves, they become the same. It's the never-ending cycle of wanting to be our own gods. We don't want to need anyone else. But where's the root of all of this? Where's the root of all of our self-sufficiency and all of our envy? Why do we wander from God and his promises? Verse 13 is a key verse. It's where the psalmist says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And what's he, what's he saying here? Well, he's done all the right things, right? He's done all the external things. He's, he's kept the law perfectly. He's washed his hands. He's kept himself uh, undefiled. But also, in his heart, he's kept his heart undefiled. He hasn't harbored idols or coveted things that he didn't have. But alas, he says, none of this has made any difference in my life. The psalmist concludes that living a good life has not brought him wealth or freedom from trouble. Therefore, it's all been in vain. And a writer says, This admittance unmasks his heart. His obedience was not a way of pleasing God, but rather a means of getting God to please him. When we say to God, I'll serve you only if X happens, we're really worshiping X. It's X that we love, and God is just a necessary means to obtain it. The shock of this admission begins to clear his mind. You ever felt this way, robbed of your reward, robbed of what you thought you earned? Very important to understand these two two points in response to that. Number one, God is good. It's very simple. It's, It's hard to remember. It's hard to keep reminding ourselves God is good, even when things go awry. And two, Divine goodness is not prosperity, but presence. Divine prosperity 
Divine goodness is not prosperity, but presence. God's presence means that you may be poor, but you're rich in Christ. God's presence means you may be forgotten by the world, but you're remembered by God. Divine presence, God's presence means that you may be hated by the world, but you're loved by God, the only one whose opinion really matters. Why do people leave the faith when, when life gets hard? I'm sure you, you've, you know some people. I do. Most likely, it's because they're doubting God's goodness. And they believe God's goodness equals prosperity. <clears throat> Friends, if you're a Christian, you have something better than earthly prosperity. You have divine presence. You're eternally blessed. So we see this turning point in the psalm. We're getting to this turning point. And we're asking the question now, how do we come back? We've been away from God. We've drifted. How do we come back? And the key turning point of the whole psalm is verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. He reaches a breaking point. He's tired. He's confused. He wants to be drawn back to God. How does it happen? At the moment of despair, at the moment when he's utterly exhausted, he goes to the place of worship, and all becomes clear. Why does the sanctuary have this effect? So, so interesting. How does the sanctuary have this effect? The church. G.K. Beale says... What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. You see, there's this transformation that happens in worship, in the context of worship. We become what we worship. We become what we worship. That's true for anything that we worship. The psalmist is saying, if you worship idols... Or created things, you'll become spiritually lifeless and senseless, just like them. If you worship God, you begin to change to be like Him. This is perfectly encapsulated when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, hear me carefully. This is important. There's no secret formula to being brought into God's presence, to being reoriented to God. He's given us ordinary means. Ordinary means. It's not miraculous visions. It's not prophetic dreams. It's not spiritual power. But it's through reading the Bible, believing its promises are for you. It's, it's through the sign and seal of our salvation and baptism. It's through the celebration and communion of the Lord's Supper. It's expressed through prayer and wholesale reliance on the Lord. It's through these tangible, ordinary means that the Holy Spirit does extraordinary things. Yes. Don't forsake these things. Don't forsake these things for yourself or for your family. Remember, we become what we worship. Well, how else do we come back to the Lord? When we found ourselves drifting away, how do we come back? Well, we must admit that it's we who drifted and not God, right? God never drifts away from us. We are the ones who drift away. So we need to confess our sin. It's essential. 
And that's what the psalmist does here. In verse 2, he acknowledges that his sin has caused him to almost fall. To almost fall into despair. But it wasn't just himself that he was hurting. It was others. Look at verse 15. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if I speak these things, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's saying is, I hesitate to say this in case I might make the younger ones fall or stumble. That makes sense, right? Think of the damage that can happen in a church or any institution when the pastor or the leader has a moral failure. The church will crumble. I know of numerous cases where that's happened. But even on a less public level, we've got to remember that our sins affect other members in the body of Christ because we're linked by Christ. Our children are affected by the sins of arrogance and pride. Our children see this especially well. Children know when we're not, when we're not really worshiping. They, they know when our heart's not in it. They know when we're faking it. But does this mean we never admit our sins? That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that confession is hard and sin does damage. But one of the best ways to teach our kids about grace is, is to repent and to confess to them. Sin does damage, but using wisdom as our guide, we must show our children and others that we aren't perfect, that we struggle too, and that we need a Savior. This brings us to the most important way in which entering the sanctuary helps us come back to God. In the sanctuary, we're reminded of grace. We're reminded of the gospel. And it's in the gospel that we're told about the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in the gospel that we're told of a Savior who was trampled down in his life. Isaiah tells us that he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Like the wicked who mocked God by saying, does God know? Does, does the Most High have knowledge? Jesus' kingship, too, was, was mocked as he hung on the cross. They said, he saved others. Will he save himself? He who endured the pangs and punishments reserved for the wicked for wicked people. If anyone deserved a prosperous life, it was Christ. But he was forsaken by God. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice for our sins because he never drifted away from God. He never became envious of the world like we do. Instead, he was jealous for God's glory. He never lived a self-sufficient life but constantly relied on his Father through prayer. He never doubted God's goodness like we often do. But he knew that his death would purchase the salvation of his bride, the church. The psalmist points us forward to the pure one, the perfect one, who purifies us as we hope in him. The Apostle John writes, And everyone who thus hopes in him, Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. In the gospel message, we're told about the one who allows us to draw near to God into the sanctuary. Through his blood, he cleanses us and purifies our souls. If you trust in him today, you are now qualified to go into the sanctuary, to be near God because of his perfect record and not yours. And when we talk about wisdom, Christ is where true wisdom dwells. The world tells us that wisdom is in prosperity and wealth. God tells us that wisdom is in the cross of Christ. A bloody sacrifice, a failure in the world's eye, 
but a victory in God's eye. So that Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 1.22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And friends, the gospel is chiefly about the cross. The gospel is not preached or talked about unless the cross is talked about and preached. Salvation comes through death. The wisdom of the world mocks Jesus, but it was God's plan to use what the world saw as folly to put to shame the rulers and authorities of the world. So how should we live? How then should we live? This is looking at the last part of the psalm, verses 18 through 28. Through Christ's finished work, we have secured life with God. If you you look at the psalmist, what he's doing, the fog is beginning to lift now. There's this transition out of the sanctuary. Verses 18 and 20 through 20 displays his newfound confidence in the eternal destination of the wicked and the steadfast love of the Lord. These last verses of the psalm give us some practical insights on how we should live. For one, we gain an eternal perspective on things. We, it reminds us of the true destination of the wicked. Verses 18 through 20, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Isn't that interesting? The wicked are compared to dreams that are barely remembered when we wake. They lack substance. They're temporary. This tells us that all things that are, that are not united to God, the giver of, of life and reality, will ultimately lack life and reality themselves. It's like when you're a kid and you have a, a scary dream at night. Um, when I was five or six, I had a terrifying dream that there were fish in my bed, in my pajamas, and I think we, maybe we had just gotten a, um, a fish bowl or something with some fish downstairs. Man, it was a real dream. I mean, you felt the wet, cold scales up against your skin. Like, it just, some dreams are just so real. I went running upstairs to my mom, and as we talked, immediately it vanished. You know, the dream just dissipates. It's gone. An author writes, within the confines of a dream, you may be very intimidated by some powerful being or fishes. But as soon as you wake, you laugh at its impotence to harm your real life. All the world's power and wealth are like a dream. They can neither enhance or ruin a Christian's deepest identity, happiness, and inheritance. The psalmist is also reminded of the true reality of his errors. Of where he failed. Verses 21 and 22 says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's saying, I was basically like an animal towards you, acting on impulses. But he says, Yet despite our errors, we can stand firm. And this is one of the most beautiful confessions of faith in the Bible. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, through the tragedies of life, through the lowest of the low, when we feel the weakest, can we really confess this? Can you make this your confession? That God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. Not you, but God. This is the radical grace of God. Despite our failures, God remains with us. Despite perplexing situations in life, God is still near. Brothers and sisters, we're called to believe this today. That even when God seems far away, know that he's near. When we feel dry in our spiritual life, know that Christ is the fountain that never runs dry. Go to him. Go to him. He is near. Take the Lord's Supper. Have your faith strengthened. Cry out to God in prayer and see him move. Wait for him. He'll bring you what you need. And then like this, the psalmist in verse 28, we ought to tell of his good works to others. Be ready and willing to tell of his great salvation God has worked for you. Tell of his love. Tell of his grace to your family members, to your friends, to your co-workers. Tell them about the power to save and steadfast love that never runs dry. Most people have never experienced a love like this. Tell them about it. They desperately need to hear it. Tell them that even in the midst of the difficulties of life, through Christ, God is continually with us. And finally, in verse 28, he says, I have made the Lord my refuge. The Lord God, my refuge. We can feel secure. For the rest of our lives, we can feel this security in us. That we are safe. That, we, that God is our refuge. Nevertheless, God is continually with us. I want to close just by reading Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you that we can be secure eternally. <laughs> Cast our eyes, Father, onto you and your love. It's so easy to be caught up in the world, to be caught up in, in the tragedies and the sadness. We long, Father, for our future home with you. Uh, be with us now, Father, as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.